I'm excited to continue in a, a series uh, called Deconstructed. Deconstructed. And this morning's message is actually entitled Unity. And so it might seem somewhat counterintuitive to say deconstructed unity. Uh, but we're continuing a series through 1 Corinthians today. And uh, well, I'm really struggling with this thing. There we go. Um, we're continuing a series through 1 Corinthians today, and uh, we'll actually wrap up chapter 11 with this morning's message. In case you're joining us for the first time this morning, I want to let you know that I might refer to uh, Paul from time to time, and just so you uh, know who it is that I'm referring to, the Corinthians, um, the book of Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And so uh, if you hear me say Paul from time to time. I'm actually speaking about the author of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to go ahead and start off by reading uh, the section of scripture that we're going to unpack this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can read along if you want to follow on the app, or you can just look up at the screen and it will be uh, projected as well. We're going to get started at verse 17 of chapter 11, and then we're going to read right through and, and finish off chapter 11, as I mentioned. So here we go. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. (laughs) How encouraging. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? (laughs) I love that stuff. What? (laughs) Picture myself writing something like that. Um, Anyway, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is, uh, sorry, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I have directions when I come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come together to examine your word to learn how it applies to our life today. I pray that we would have uh, an encounter with you in a profound way this morning uh, for your glory and that we would leave this place um, contemplating what it is that you would have us uh, to consider. In your name we pray. Everyone said, 
Amen. Uh, I played baseball as a kid, and um, I've tried as an adult. It has never worked out well. Uh, turns out I just keep getting older and slower. Uh, but as a, uh, as a kid, I played baseball, and in particular, there was one summer um, that I had a, a, discerni- uh, a disturbing interaction, I guess is the best way to explain it. And there were a lot of like embarrassing and bizarre things that happened to me on the baseball field, as you can imagine. It seems sometimes that I lived a complicated life if for nothing else than to be able to have illustrations to share with people when I would preach someday. But um, there was uh, this one time in particular I was playing in a summer, uh, on a summer team, and uh, I can't remember if it was an all-star team or not. I really, I was trying to think about uh, when it was. I was just an all-star all the time, so... <laughs> Anyway, not really. Um, so in either case, I, uh, I really don't remember, and I wanted to be as truthful and as accurate as possible. But in either case, it was a, I know that it was a summer league, and um, I remember that mostly because I remember the uniform that I was wearing. And I'm not exactly sure uh, what age I was. I was either a preteen or uh, an early teenager. I remember I was up to bat, and uh, as I went up to bat, um, I approached home plate, and the umpire looked at me and said, Are you a starter? And I thought, I wonder if he like is trying to figure out the order, if we're batting out of order, like all those things that kind of like <laughs> rise up in you, like, oh no, am I doing something wrong? And I was like, yeah, why? He's like, ah, nothing, go ahead. I was like, all right. And so I was confused. And um, I could tell this story and go past what the actual at-bat was like, but I feel like it would just be highlighting something positive about me rather than sharing what was really kind of ridiculous about it. Um, so the truth of the matter is this at-bat, uh, I took a full swing at the first uh, at the first pitch, and um, it was a strike, and uh, which means I missed the ball. For those of you that are not baseball players, <laughs> and uh, then uh, his uh, he kind of backed me off the plate a little bit, and his next pitch was a curveball that they would say fell off the table, if you will, and so my knees literally buckled. And he froze me because I thought the ball was going to hit me. And instead, it dropped down and he threw a strike. And I was like, wow, I look like an idiot. And uh, then the umpire said, you sure you're a starter? And I just looked at him like, well, I'm going to whip this bat at your forehead. Um, and so I stepped out of the box for a second, kind of collected myself and stepped back in and had determined really a bad decision. Um, there's Three strikes will make you out for those of you that are really struggling to follow along. Currently at two strikes and... Um, and so I just determined I'm, I'm going to swing at this next ball as hard as I can. I'm going to teach that ump a lesson. I'm going to show him who I am. And uh, so the, uh, the next pitch comes in, and I take a full swing. And uh, it's what I like to refer to as a swinging bunt. Okay? Uh, so I took a, a full swing. The ball hit just barely nicked the bottom of my bat. It went straight down the ground and just trickled a little bit between the catcher and the pitcher. And so I ran as hard as I could. I was running so hard. In fact, I kicked my own rear end in the back. And uh, I actually fell forward and slid over first base. I was safe. There were stars. It was awkward. Um, so in either case, that's the devastating part. I figured I got to share that part. If I'm going to be honest about everything else, I can't just be like, so I got a single. And you're like, oh, wow, I guess he's pretty good. Yeah, no, it was devastating. And so, um, I'm getting up on, uh, on, on first base and I'm 
call time. I'm cleaning myself off. And the guy on first like, dude, I've never seen anybody slide into first. I'm like, yeah, I know, crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dangerous. You break a wrist. I mean, it's nuts, but that's how fast I am. And uh, so the pitcher... Uh, throw, you know, is looking at me and uh, he throws to first a couple times to kind of check me there because he thinks I'm going to steal second, which I did do. Side note, I'm not going to get there, but in either case, I did do. So there's a little bit of encouragement to myself <laughs> because really that's what this is all about. Anyway, uh, so in either case, I'm, um, I'm standing on first and then I notice something. The ump looks at the guy up to bat in between, um, in between pitches after the pitcher checked me a couple times. And he says something to him, and the guy's talking to him, and I know that the person that's following me is actually not a starter. And so the umpire hands him his brush and tells him to clean off home plate. And so this kid bends over and cleans off home plate, and I get irate because I realize he was asking me if I was a starter because he was trying to determine if he was going to make me clean off home plate, which is his job, and it's rather embarrassing to be told by an umpire to clean off home plate. And so uh, I find myself at second base. I don't remember how the, ending ended, uh, how the inning ended, but I remember going to the dugout, and I did what any um, integral uh, person would do if they saw such an injustice. I told on him like a little kid. And so I ran over uh, to my coach and I told him what happened. I was so frustrated. I couldn't believe it that he would embarrass our teammate that way and make him clean off home plate. And so it was interesting because our coach became irate as well, but for an entirely different reason. He started walking towards the umpire and he's like, hey, hey. And he starts yelling. He goes, blue, up, up. And he like looks at him and he's like, what? And he throws, he goes, you're making my kids clean off your plate? And he's like, he throws up his hands. He's like, you get paid to pay the, to, to come and ump this game, don't you? And he's like, yeah. He's like, no, I asked you a question. Did you get paid? And so he's angry because the umpire has been paid to do a job and he's making players do his work. So it's interesting. The umpire standing back there saying, I don't feel like doing my job. It's an inconvenience. And so I'm going to use my authority to make other people do my job for me. Because what matters to me right now is my convenience, my comfort. What mattered to me was this sense of disunity. The fact that our team member would be embarrassed. It seemed like a wrong that needed to be righted. But what's interesting is when I articulated that to the coach, the thing that mattered most to him was this umpire had been paid to do a job and he was essentially refusing to do it. And so as we think about all these different things that matter in different situations and different seasons of our life, I want to ask you this question. Why is it so easy to forget what really matters? What really matters? You see, because what really matters is often determined by us in the moment. We decide what really matters. The, if you froze time right then and walked up to the ump and said, what really matters? He'd be like, what really matters is I'm too stinking uncomfortable in my get-up, and so I'm not going to bend over and clean off home plate. I'm going to make these kids do it. What mattered to me is that one of my friends had been embarrassed. What mattered to the coach is that somebody had been paid to do their job and was refusing to do it. So why is it so easy to forget what really matters? Who determines what really matters? I want to submit to you that the issue is something that we've kind of discussed here before. It's this idea of self over others, right? We determine what matters to ourselves over other people. And so this idea of evaluating self 
impacts a lot of different areas of our life. A lot of different areas of our life. The truth of the matter is that we even gather based on what we have in common as humans. Okay, so I'm not speaking just to Christians this morning. I'm not speaking to irreligious people this morning. I'm speaking to uh, both extremes and everyone in between. Wherever you identify your spirituality, as a human being, we have a common issue, and that's that we connect with people based on common interest. That's the reality of it. When we have something in common, we connect with those people. In fact, oftentimes, when we have conversations, we're trying to figure out where it is that we can find common ground in order to connect. Or we're determining where it is we have disagreement to decide why we shouldn't connect. Like, oh man, we really disagree. In fact, I think I hate you already, and I've barely met you. So we determine these things all the time because of what matters to us, what our interest is. We unify with people that are like us. Doesn't that just sound so bad? The truth is we identify with people that are like us and it sounds self-serving because it is. It just is. It's at its core, it is who we are as humans. We find commonality and then we connect based on that common ground. But is that a bad thing? And is it a bad thing to connect where we have common ground. If we naturally gather based on what we have in common, then oftentimes we form groups based on that. We actually have a name for that. It's kind of an annoying name, honestly, uh, but the, the name for that is cliques. If you've experienced any life at all, you've heard like, oh my gosh, they're so clicky. Or at least that's the way I sound when I say it, <laughs> evidently. No, but yeah, like, oh, it's just so clicky. It's such an environment. I mean, I really like it. It just seems like it's super clicky. Like, it's all just about, like, themselves and whatever. And I don't know why you sound that way, but you do. It's really weird. But I kind of hate the word because I feel like it's overdone. And I spent 10 years in youth ministry, me and my wife. We spent 10 years in youth ministry. And we would hear that all the time. Like, I hate being at school because it's just so clicky. And then I, you know, I come here and there's clicks. And I just want to belong. And... Now, as much as we kind of have a negative connotation when we use the word clicks, beyond it just being an annoying word in general, maybe my own perspective, uh, perception, but there's a negative connotation, but I want you to consider that there are bad clicks and there are actually good clicks. There's a such thing as a good click. So a bad click, if you will, and I really want to stop using that word, um, but a, a bad click is one that is closed, it's exclusive, and people gather to pursue slash find their identity. That would be a bad click, a click where they're coming together and saying, we all have this in common, right? Don't we? We belong, right? I mean, you like me, I like you, right? Come on, can we be friends? And I've talked before about how some people say, like, no, I'm totally, like, I'm not into the click thing. Like, I don't connect with other people. Um, and, you know, in youth ministry, we had, you know, the name loner for that, and, uh, it was kind of one of those things that was a big deal when we were in youth ministry. It's like, dude, I'm a loner. And uh, really, you don't have any friends? He's like, no, no, nobody, man. It's just me. Like, I'm just totally alone. And then there's like a whole group of us that like are total loners. And we just kind of gather together and we talk about how we don't care about anybody. <laughs> like, yeah, you're not alone, right? You realize that? <laughs> like, there's a group of loners. They're like, whatever, we're totally awesome and anti-establishment. You know, so we, we find... <laughs> 
identity in things that are not really even true oftentimes, but we gather because of common ground. And we could, we could polarize this room right now by just talking about sports teams, probably. And, and I mean, we all know that the Yankees are terrible. We realize that. Well, I, <laughs> I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. So anyway, uh, the, uh, the fact is you can say sporting teams and all of a sudden people will gather on either side. You make de- you know, definitive statements and people are like, what? And it's amazing how you can polarize a room, how people will gather in groups based on something being articulated. So is it, is it a negative thing that people gather? Well, I think if they gather in a closed group where it's exclusive and they're trying to find identity, they're trying to search for identity, as, I, as I've already articulated, I think that's a bad group. A good one, a good clique is open. We're going to gather based on what we have in common, but you're welcome to join us. We're inclusive. We'll allow you to come even if you don't think the way we think. So we gather because of commonality, but we're open to anyone else gathering in that group as well. We gather oftentimes because we have identity. We have nothing to prove. Our preconceived ideas on how awesome we are or how terrible we are kind of fall by the wayside because we're not trying to determine our self-worth. We have identity. You see, I want you to consider that in the back of your mind as we look at the text this morning, this dynamic of gathering, of what really matters. And we look at Paul as he starts to, to communicate to the Corinthians here, the church in Corinth, in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For the worse. He's, he's telling them straight up, listen, there's a problem here. And we have to understand the context of what's happening in Roman culture at the time. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background so you can understand the tension of what's taking place. So a typical Roman house uh, at that time, uh, the larger homes, uh, had what's called an atrium. And they had an atrium. It was kind of what we would refer to kind of as a courtyard. It would be open air. There would typically be like a pool in the center uh, to gather rainwater and stuff like that. So it was was an area called the atrium. And off of... uh, This atrium uh, would be the bedrooms, and there would also be another room uh, called a triclinium. Triclinium. I knew I was going to say it wrong. I even told Meredith, I was like, I'm going to say this wrong. Triclinium. So there's a triclinium. And so the triclinium is a room off of uh, the courtyard, and it was a private dining area for the owner, for friends, for business associates, it was a place that they would eat. It would be kind of a private dining room, for lack of a better room. It would seat typically between 9 and 12 people, and uh, the word kind of comes from uh, two words, tri meaning three, and uh, kleine, which actually means couch or like a chaise lounge. And so these tables would be situated, there would be a table in the center, and then there would be three couches, chaise lounges or pillows, and they would be in kind of a horseshoe shape, and the fourth side of the table would be open to the doorway, and that would be so that servants or slaves could come in and serve the table, and people would kind of recline at this table, and they would eat here. Now, you kind of need to understand that dynamic because there would also be the atrium, which is what we would kind of refer to as the kids' table if we're talking about Thanksgiving, okay? (laughs) And that's where everybody else kind of eats their food. Um, That would usually hold standing between 30 and 40 people, depending on the size of the home, and it would 
uh, require a stand-up dinner. So they would kind of stand there and they would eat whatever leftovers were served from that main dining area. So they'd just kind of wait and be like, hey, anything left over? We're super hungry out here. It would be for kids, servants, slaves, lower class. And uh, if the owners were kind, they would uh, serve them food as well, but it would be a cheaper food, less expensive. And so that's just the way life worked in Corinth. Um, and so the, the church, and the reason why you might say, well, so what? Who cares about that? Um, the church in Corinth met in homes. They met in uh, homes that could handle the size of their church gatherings. And so as a result, uh, these typical Roman homes would be a place that they would gather for what's called the Lord's Supper, which would then lead into a type of communion, essentially. And so uh, what Paul is kind of addressing is this dynamic that is just in the community that's infiltrating the church, okay? So in the community, it would be very typical for people to come in and realize where they find their place. So if they're uh, well-to-do, if they're friends with the owner, uh, if they're a wealthy person, they go right into that room. Um, They get the better food, they recline, there's plenty of space. Uh, Everybody else that's not friends, lower class, comes into the class of servant, slave, or child, they stand out in the atrium because, quite frankly, they just know their place. And so Paul is saying, listen, this is a socioeconomic class and racial division. There's a problem here. It shouldn't happen in the church. And so he says in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I love that he just kind of definitively says, hey, just so you know, you can call it the Lord's Supper, but when you gather together, that's not what you're doing. In case you're curious Your supper, the way that you eat in line with your customs, in line with your society, what's acceptable to you is actually disunity. And it's revealing the disunity. In fact, it runs contrary to the truth of the gospel. So Paul has a problem and he goes on in verse 21. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And so this is kind of speaking to the fact that uh, the people that were invited earlier sometimes because they were wealthier, well-to-do, and invited into that enclosed room, they would be eating while guests are still arriving for the church service, if you will. And people would kind of sit outside. It says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. So in this room, these people are just gorging and they're eating food. They're eating the best food. They're drinking wine. In fact, they're consuming so much that the, the rumor of what's taking place in Corinth that Paul has heard is that some of them are even becoming intoxicated because of what's being served to them. So they're literally getting drunk in this room for higher class elite people. And meanwhile, there's people out in the atrium that have literally not had a meal at all today. They're starving. And the church, the Lord's Supper, the division is mind-boggling. But it mimics the society that they're from. And so... Verse 22, what? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You're humiliating them. They're out in the atrium and they're, they're trying to, to find belonging and hope and identity in the truth of the gospel and you're revealing that you're not removed from the community at all, that you're exactly like everybody else they come in contact with. You're declaring the status, the divide. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Way to have the Lord's Supper. 
No, I will not. Paul's like, you got to be kidding me. Seriously? You're so bought into the way that life is, the way Roman life is in Corinth, that you haven't realized that the truth of the gospel should turn that all upside down. That you should function completely differently. You're making the church something opposite of what Christ intended. (laughs) Hear that again because I got to tell you, it's something that rings true today in in a lot of ways, in ways that we don't even maybe want to grapple with. And I'm not talking about our church, this gathering. I'm talking about big C church, Christendom as a whole. We're making the church something that is opposite of what Christ intended. If we aren't careful, we will have closed, exclusive groups where we seek meaning and identity. It's contrary to the church. Come to a place to belong, right? Because we belong. Like, we should be like this. You see, our hearts are bent that way. They're just naturally bent that way. We want to belong so badly. So how do we reorient our hearts? How do we get to a place that, that quite frankly, that's not the case? I mean, do we, do we choose to be more inclusive? Right? Is that the answer? Listen, be nicer. Just be nicer. Like, don't care about what you have in common. Just put down the walls and just be nice to people you wouldn't normally be nice to. Because they won't sense your, ins- <laughs> your insincerity, right? It's as if we think people's brains are missing. Oh, yeah, I really totally like you. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. I mean, I'll smile because you're smiling, but we both know this is a lie. Yeah. We both know that if I was in Target, you'd run away. <laughs> we both know I work at Walmart and you pretend you don't go. You know, like, so there's this divide that happens in our culture all the time. And we just say, but that's the way we function. It's okay, that's the way we are. And Paul's saying it wasn't okay in Corinth and it's not okay here. It runs contrary to the truth of the gospel. So if that's the case, then something has to transform us from the inside. If we're not able to conjure up this effort, if we're not able to sincerely look at someone else and realize that they're image bearers of God, that they have value. And as much as we'll allow that to tumble off our lips, there's so many stops to that and hurdles that we have to get over. So how do we transform ourselves from the inside? I don't know that we can transform ourselves. But I know that Paul goes right from there to something key. He goes right from this place to say, no, I will not condemn that. It is not okay. And then what seems to be abrupt, and yet I submit to you today, is all too intentional. He goes right into verse 23, which is this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is saying our identity must be in Christ. You see, if we want to live life to the fullest, then when we deconstruct our life and we have Christ the center, not one of the pieces, but the very center of our lives, then unity is one of the pieces. Unity becomes one of the pieces if Christ is the center of our lives. Listen, we are unified in one thing, the one thing we all have in common. Regardless of how much you do or don't have, your age or where you're from, we are all sinners in need of a savior. We are unified by our brokenness. Listen, if you can if you can keep that in the forefront of your heart and mind, it will transform you from the inside out. Because you're not putting your best effort to try to be kind to someone or compassionate to someone out of your own empty well. Instead, you're coming to a place to realize the one thing we have in common is our own brokenness. If our identity is rooted in Jesus, we realize that the gospel is inclusive. It's an open invitation to any that call upon the name of Jesus and humble themselves. It's not for a certain class. It's not for a certain group of people, a certain race, a certain age. We're unified by one single thing, our need of a Savior. Verse 28 says this, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's interesting, this is not a momentary thing. It's not like, hey, just examine yourself. In Western society, we've tended to turn this into a moment during communion. Like, so let's go ahead and examine ourselves. But it's far more broad than that. Paul's talking about examining your life on an ongoing basis. To, to consider the reality of how it is that you perceive the world around you, the people that you interact with, to consider what it is that you have taken from the culture and placed into your life as if it's just a normal part of life. It's amazing how that blurs, right? How all of a sudden it just blurs. We're like, but that's what we do. And they're like, why do we do that? Like, that seems kind of wretched. <laughs> It ought to be different. The gospel should change our perception. It should change our uh, status structure. It should change the way that we function, the way that we interact, the way that we spend our money, the way that we look at people, the way we consider the things that we do for a living, where it is that we live. Every aspect and every part of our lives should be driven by something eternal. Otherwise, like we're just a part of the same game that everybody else is playing. Like, if that's not the core of what it is you're drawing from, then, hey, listen, keep getting a better job. Like, just join the race like everybody else and just jump in, work harder, get more stuff. Whoever has the most toys dies the happiest, right? We've seen that play out for others well. There has to be something more meaningful. It has to be deeper. Otherwise, we're playing the game that our neighbors are playing. What sets us apart? It's got to be the reality that we're unified by our brokenness. There's something that runs deeper that causes us to examine ourselves, to examine every relationship, every interaction, the decisions that we make. 
We will often say as we gather here that the text requires something from us. And I want you to consider this morning a question as you leave this place, maybe it's something that you can answer the place right now, but maybe the conversation is longer. The question is this, where do we need to apply a gospel lens in our lives? Where do we need to apply a gospel lens in our lives? And maybe you know the place. In other words, maybe right now you can say, oh, it's definitely the way that we interact with our friends. Or it's definitely the way that we spend our money. Or it's definitely the way we make decisions. I don't know what it is for you this morning. I don't know what place it might be. But we have to examine ourselves. And not simply examine ourselves, but examine ourselves in light of who Jesus is and what he has done which is the core of what communion is about. It's the core of what it means to remember what Jesus has done, his broken body, his shed blood. And so we have opportunity to examine ourselves this morning. For some of you in the room, this examination maybe starts with a decision to cross that line of salvation, to to make a decision to say, I've lived my life for myself. I've tried to gather as much as I can. I've tried to fit in and belong, and I'm left wanting. And so this morning, maybe your application is to cross that line of faith, to to pray a prayer, to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you shed blood and your body was broken for me, for my sins. So would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. Maybe that's the examination that you have to do, is the internal implications of what's before you, how you live your life. For others, maybe the examining and the application has to look like how it is that you are or aren't living on mission. This is tough. I mean, it's tough because we've got a room of really good people. And so it's so easy to be like, no, I'm a good person. But we can be really good people and miss out on the fullness of what Christ intended. Because there are people that are maybe in our sphere of influence that need to hear the truth that we have. Are we living on mission, or are there segments of our life that we've separated? Almost like rooms off of a courtyard. You belong in here, you belong out there. Do we have a clear mind of the reality that what we have in common is that we need a savior? We're coming into a season where people are more open to attending church than ever. It's Easter. It seems like it's the one time that you can just kind of unapologetically invite people to church. Like, okay, I guess I'll check it out. And so I want you to consider that as you leave this place, that maybe some of you, maybe your application is to just extend an invitation to someone that God's put in your sphere of influence to just say, hey, would you... Would you like to come to church with me and just check it out? And, and it's not about growing this church. I, I'm fi- like, if you go to another church, bring them to that one. I, I'm talking about living on mission. I'm talking about allowing the gospel to inform your life. <laughs> People on the podcast will not be able to appreciate that. We got to put like a fan in front of that thing or something. The reality is there are people that 
are segmented by society. They're sidelined. And they have a misconception of the perception that people in a church have of them. I could never go there. Why? Well, because of what they think. It's a lie. But it stops them. It's a hurdle they can't get past. And God has strategically placed you to speak truth. So right now, I'm unapologetically speaking to the insider, to the churchgoer, to the Christ follower, to say, listen, are there people that have hurdles that you can come and say, listen, it's not about where you come from. It's not about the baggage you bring. I'm a hot mess too. <laughs> Would you just come and see if, if God has something for you? This is a place where you can belong, where we're unified by our brokenness and our need of a savior. So this morning, I want you to uh, bow your heads and close your eyes, maybe if you will. Like I said before, if, if you're easily distracted, you can keep your eyes open and look at the ground. I just don't want you to be distracted by things happening in the room. I want you to consider what it is that the Lord may be speaking to you. Is it an invitation? A coworker, a loved one, friend, family? Is it more about maybe reorienting the way you view your own life? As you place that gospel lens into different areas and you say like, wait a second, why are we why are we going to consider taking that job? Is it just for more money? Like, is that a good decision? It seems like a decision that anybody that wants more stuff would make. <laughs> is this something that, that maybe if we pray about that God is leading us to? And, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't be something that God's leading you to. I'm just saying, are you putting it through the right lens? Relationships. Family members. What does unity look like in your life? For others of us, maybe it's even simpler than that. We have disunity in our marriage. We have disunity if you're a, a teenager in the room and you have a group of friends, you, you've created disunity because of something secondary that simply doesn't matter. Society has told you it matters. It's a sense of popularity or belonging to a specific group as if that matters for the rest of your life. I don't know what it is, but I know that it's something because we're a work in progress. Because what we have in common is our brokenness. As you consider that this morning, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And we're going to go into a response of worship. And I want to I want to let you know that uh, to your right, um, halfway back in the room, there's a, a table. It's a table with uh, the communion emblems there. Symbol of our Lord's broken body and shed blood. And I'm going to pray over those as well. And if you feel compelled as you examine yourself, if you feel compelled to say, listen, I want, I want to reorient my heart and mind by partaking a symbol of our Lord's broken body and his shed blood, and you want to take communion, you can feel free to do that. You can feel free to just go over and partake of it and come back. Um, we'll provide opportunity. We're, we're not going to take it in, uh, in unison today. So as the Lord may lead you, if that's part of your response, we want to invite you to do that. Let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet, if you would. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. 
as we consider what the Lord might be revealing to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to be a part of the redeeming process in the hearts and lives of everyone we come in contact with. And so we pray this morning that as we, uh, as we come into this time that you would search our hearts. That as we examine ourselves, Holy Spirit, would you come and examine? Would you put your finger on the thing that needs the gospel lens on it, that would reorient the way we perceive the situation, the relationship, whatever it might look, the decision that needs to be made? Father, as we maybe partake of communion, that you would bless the emblems of your broken body and the symbol of your shed blood, Lord. And maybe as we take as a family those symbols, Lord, that it would reorient our heart and mind to what it is that you've called us to do and who it is you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that as we respond in worship to you this morning, that you would do a work that only you can do. We worship you, God.